Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Hello, everyone. I'm Geraldo Maglara, and welcome to another podcast episode of A Fit Life on the Believe Podcast Network, the number one podcast network for professionals. Do you believe? One of the scariest and most dreaded and feared words in anyone's vocabulary is cancer. Um, it doesn't matter who you are and what you believe and what you stand for, what you look like or, or, or whatever. When you hear the word cancer, that's a life-changing moment because cancer doesn't discriminate, doesn't debate you, it doesn't play favorites. When you get cancer, you only have one choice and that is to fight it with everything that you've got. My guest today, is Dean Hall. He is a two-time cancer survivor, and we will focus on his amazing story throughout this podcast and, and what he went through and his triumphs and, and overcoming impossible odds. And um, he's also a, a licensed clinical marriage and family therapist. He's a success coach. He's an author, motivational speaker, um, he's an expert in the field of neuroacoustics, and um, his, his story is just amazing. And I am so honored and privileged to have him on the show today. So without further ado, please help me welcome to the show, Mr. Dean Hall. Hi, Dean. How are you? Uh, good, Earl. Thank you so much for having <laughs> me on your podcast. Oh, I've been looking forward to this as well. So we we have a, a lot to talk about, and I want to get through it, um, you know, step by step. But um, first question, right off the bat, tell sure. me a little bit about who you are and um, and what you're all about. Yeah, well, uh, I am just turned 61. Ooh, uh, never amazing. thought I would live this long. <laughs> oh, thank you. Uh, and I'm still a licensed marriage and family therapist, certified clinical hypnotherapist, have been for 31 years now. Uh, and this might make me sound kind of a little OCD, but I think it's part of being an old athlete. I don't know. But I had might to be. do 2,000 <laughs> Yeah, 2,000 face-to-face -face hours in order to sit for my licensure test. And once I they started me counting, I, I just kept, you know, tallying up the score every year. And this <laughs> year, I just passed 60,000 face-to-face hours with folks Wow! as a therapist. So been a therapist for three decades. I was also a public school teacher before that and some of it concurrently for almost 20 years. Uh, and now, uh, in the last seven or eight, I have been a world record, two-time world record holder for um, ultra-distance open water swimming. Wow. Wow. Yeah. That's... And, and I guess I should say, and this is probably what I should have started with, I'm a two-time cancer survivor. Yes. That's, that's what I want to talk about. 
Sure. Um, you are a two-time cancer survivor, and it's been a right. journey that's amazing journey, actually. So, again, please tell me about the journey, how you, how you discovered it, how you handled it, how you moved on. Please, we want to know. Right. Well, I was a college athlete and a soccer player. And my last year of playing soccer in college, I um, hyperextended my left knee to the point where I actually kicked myself in my own face. Oh, um, wow. That's, <laughs> it just bent. Yeah, it bent fully all the way around. It, it was ugly. And oh, my gosh, it hurt so bad. I'm sure uh, it did. <laughs> and so for years, I had several knee surgeries for years and years and years. I was just waiting for a total knee operation. Um, they said I needed one the first time when I was 25, but there, there was no way they were going to give a total knee to a 25-year-old because especially back then, it was only good for about 10 to 15 years. Mm -hmm. And so I waited and waited and waited. And right before I turned 47, uh, you know, 20 years later, I was getting a total knee. Uh, well, I had never really been sick. I'd always stayed in shape, always eaten right, never really taken any kind of drugs, never done cigarettes or anything. Always had been lived a very healthy life. The only thing that wasn't healthy was I was trying to be responsible and uh, I was pretty driven. And so I worked round the clock, mm -hmm. um, building a private practice. I was a weekly advice columnist for several small town newspapers around the US. Uh, and I'd written a book and was doing speaking with that. So I was just really, really busy. And um, when I went to take the pre-surgical blood test, uh, the nurse called me up a couple days later and said, hey, Dean, uh, the test came back bad. You need to come back in. Well, I had taught. You mean she just, it came out bad, like, just yeah, like that? That's that's all she said. She, she was very cryptic. The test came back bad. You need to, you need to come back in and retake the blood test. Well, mm. having never been sick, Geraldo, I was afraid, and I, and it was in this tiny little rural Kansas town of 13,000 that my wife had grown up in and mm -hmm. I taught in. And so I, I assumed that some poor tech had fouled my test. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> and it was probably in some way kind of my fault because I'd been their teacher. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> and so I didn't want them to get in trouble. And so I said, oh, please don't get anybody in trouble. It's okay. Right. I'll come in and retake it. And she said, what? And I said, huh? And she's like, just come back in and take the test. And I'm like, okay, okay, but please, you know, uh, don't, it's okay. Right. And she's like, well, okay. And she hung up. So I went back in, took the blood test again, and it still didn't occur to me that anything was wrong with me. Hmm. And then my doctor, who you had came no, to my you, you had no side effects. You had no pre-existing medical, family medical, nothing. Well, um, my dad had leukemia, okay. but the type of leukemia that he had isn't supposed to be genetic. Hmm. And so it didn't occur to me. And yeah, I was tired, but I was working 80 to 100 hours a week. I kind of oh. thought I was supposed to be tired, you know? Yeah. And, and so it really, it, I don't know, call it male ego or something, but it never occurred to me that I was sick. And then my doctor called me up and he said, Hey Dean, I, I, I need to come talk to you. Well, this wasn't unusual because he was so stressed. 
he would come into my office once or twice a month and I'd take him through a guided meditation, do some hypno and kind of de-stress him. So I thought that's what we're doing. And so he comes in after a day of work about eight or nine o'clock. And I said, Hey, Aaron, what's, what's going on? He's like, well, I need to talk to you. And I'm like, wow, what can I do for you? And he's like, eh, it's not what you can do for me, Dean. It's what I got to tell you. And I thought, oh, no, he's in trouble. He's gotten malpractice or something. <laughs> oh, no. I'm still not, I'm still not connected the dots. Oh, boy. Yeah, I'm usually not that slow. Uh, but he's like, he's like, Dean, um, you the blood test showed that you've got leukemia. And I've sent it to an oncologist I really trust. Uh, we're both really scared because it's got features of both acute and chronic we don't know which way it's going to go yet. We're hoping that it goes to chronic. But if it doesn't change, the oncologist gave you maybe two weeks to a month. To uh, live? He, yeah. He's like, it's extremely aggressive. And he said, just in the two days between the time that we took the blood test, it's advanced. The white blood cells have advanced by hundreds and hundreds. He's like, we've never seen anything like it. He's like, this is not good. And I was in shock. My first thought was, oh, at least he's not being uh, sued for malpractice. Oh, oh, Dean. Oh. <laughs> and so I, I felt this wave of relief. And then it was like, all of a sudden, it's like, whoa, wait a minute. No. <laughs> and uh, when I heard two weeks, my daughter at that time was 14 years old. And I thought, Oh my gosh. And I don't know if you've ever been around 14 year old girls, but I, I believe they need their dads. Yes. I, I have a 26 year old daughter. Oh, so do yes. you? Yeah, yeah, I do. You've been there. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I've been there. Yeah. Yeah. My daughter's now 28. So they're about the same Some age. The same age. Yeah. Yeah. And I thought I've got to do whatever I can um, to uh, live through this to be there for her. And, and so that's what I did. I, um, uh, thankfully, within just a couple weeks, it went to chronic. And so uh, the diagnosis changed. And with chronic leukemia, uh, the, the chances of it killing you right away are very slim. But it, it will take a, 10 to 20 years off your life at best. Um, at worst, it could kill you within a, if it keeps advancing within about three to five years. So I knew we had some time. Okay. Uh, but I was, this was 2007, and I was just really, really sicker than I'd ever been for most of that year. And then that summer almost died from pneumonia. I caught pneumonia Boy. that next summer. And it, I just, it just almost got me. I just almost didn't make it past that because leukemia uh, ruins your immune system. Yes. And so uh, I just didn't have anything to fight this pneumonia with. Oh yeah. boy. Oh my God. Yeah. That's, yeah so that's it was a tough journey. Tough journey. Oh boy. <laughs> Jesus. Yeah. But yeah. I, I just don't know. I mean, when you say, when you tell somebody you got two weeks to live, I mean, that's, Right. That that's scary. I mean, I don't understand. Sometimes you uh, I don't know, maybe, you know, doctors see it differently or maybe they just have a, a protocol they have to follow. But it's I, I, I would never, ever in my wildest dream tell somebody they've got two weeks to live unless I was 100 percent 
sure that was the case. Well, he didn't want to tell me, but he felt like I was minimizing and I pressed him. I, I finally said, hey, what are we looking at? Years, months? And he's like, right. no, weeks. Uh, if this doesn't change. So we were really thankful that it did. But yeah, I was I was really, really sick and learned a lot in being sick, having never really been ill before. Uh, I never felt like I was that talented. I never felt like I was that smart. I I definitely knew I wasn't that good looking. Um, wow. I'd always the one thing the one thing I'd always depended on is my ability for endurance. I knew that I was so stubborn. I did a lot of triathlons and did pretty well in them. Mm-hmm. I knew that at least I always felt like I knew that I could outlast anyone. Wow. I could start a pace and unless it was beyond my ability, I could hold that pace just by sheer grit. And boy, I I learned that that's what I call a hidden pocket of pride because uh, during that year, I I would have to use that same endurance mentality just to get from the bed to the bathroom. My life seriously changed at that point. Wow. So correct me if I'm wrong, but I know that you were previously married as well. Correct. Right. Yeah. Uh, what happened there? I know something happened there as well to obviously to complicate things even more in your <laughs> life. If that wasn't enough. Yeah, it, it got it got worse. I got better. Finally, about 2008, things really turned around. All my numbers went in the right direction. Uh, chronic lymphocytic leukemia is supposed to never go into remission. But if it goes way down, it's almost like you don't feel anything mm-hmm. other than your immune system's not real great. And so I was doing really well, feeling good again, exercising again, putting on muscle again, feeling like myself. And then uh, and that went on for about a year and a half. And then uh, late summer of 2010, uh, my wife um, of that time just started acting odd and so we took her in her face dropped and so at at first they thought she had something called Meniere's disease Mm -hmm. and then her she started losing feeling in her whole right side and not making sense and within days uh, we took her in and she was having a hard time even writing her name like a stroke system right yeah it kind of looked like that but they checked initially and said it wasn't well, they we did a brain scan and they found that she had one of the largest uh, brain tumors uh, the oncologist, the brain surgeon had ever seen. Wow. And 52 days later, she was dead. Oh, my God. Wow. So, and it was 15 days before our 30th anniversary. Oh. And I, I grew up in Oregon, uh, the son of two mountain climbers. And so I was wrecked because... I felt like I'd put myself in exile in this small Kansas town for mm. 30 years for love and um, felt like it had paid off. We'd had a good marriage, a nice life. Um, I tried not to be homesick for Oregon every day of the year. Um, but when she died, it was like, uh, are you kidding me? I, I've paid all of this to have this and it's gone gone and and i just i i didn't know what to do i was totally at a loss and you instantly became a single father correct yeah thankfully she was 18 
And so I don't know if that counts. Um, but yeah, I, I, it really made me have a lot of appreciation for single parents. Mm. Um, yeah, yeah. And also I realized, you know, we got married pretty young. I was barely 21 when I oh, got wow. married. Yeah, I tell everybody I was 21 going on 12. And, <laughs> and, and moved to her small town. It was such a rural, isolated community, only four miles from the Oklahoma border. And I was this crazy guy from the West Coast. Hmm. And so I was always, for 30 years, even though I taught there, even though I was a therapist, uh, anybody that saw me about town wouldn't call me by name. They'd say, hey, there's Mary's husband. Uh, and I didn't realize <laughs> how subconsciously that was my whole adult identity. Mm. And so once once Mary, my first wife, wasn't there, I really didn't know who I was as an adult. Um, mm. Yeah. And so I was I was just heartbroken. And that kind of what they call traumatic grief was so devastating that within a year after she was gone, really, it was only about eight months uh, the leukemia came back with a vengeance and this time brought with it lymphoma. Wow. Yeah. So I imagine you have a special bond with your daughter then, right? Yeah. <laughs> like like yeah. I do, right? Yeah. <laughs> Always have, you know, yeah. It's, mm. it, as a matter of fact, if she, if I didn't have a daughter, although you probably, we probably wouldn't be talking because mm. this thing kept getting worse and worse in Kansas without the cute little Kansas girl was Kansas. And so yeah. I moved back to Oregon, gave up my private practice, which was booming by that time. But I just I just didn't have the stomach for it. By 2013, I found myself renting a tiny little duplex um, back in Portland, uh, not working uh, because I had given up my practice. And I was down to 158 pounds and dying. And I really didn't care. Mm. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, and I'm 6'1", and uh -huh. right now I'm 220, mm -hmm. um, and not a lot of body fat. Um, and so you can imagine what I looked at it like at 158. Wow. Um, I, I was skeletal. Yeah, yeah of you, course. The only, the biggest things on me, were my lymph nodes under my jaw. Uh, they were just huge. I looked, what I felt like was disfigured. Wow, yeah. amazing. So let me understand here. So you are sick, right? You have still the leukemia right. and the lymph. And right. at that particular time, most people, like you mentioned, would be like giving up or maybe finding right. some other comfort. You instead right. went the other way around. You actually decided to become a distance swimmer. I mean, are you, are you kidding me? Really? Are you kidding me? Yeah. Tell, tell me about that, please. Well, for years, I'd seen in my private practice therapist, uh, kind of from Viktor Frankl's work, uh, Man's Search for Meaning, that he was one of the first to really prove, and he proved this after having been uh, inmate in Auschwitz, the, the people that were able to stay alive in Auschwitz, if they were passionately tied to a purpose, and he found in Auschwitz, there were two main purposes, one, either to survive to see their loved ones again, or to survive and kill as many Nazis as possible. <laughs> yeah. And he found that it really, the purpose really didn't matter. It just mattered how passionate you were about it. And 
I had used this to help people come back from all sorts of devastating life events and uh, mental health situations. And, and so I'd seen time and time again that if people were passionate about a purpose, they would not only survive, many times they would thrive. But I just didn't care about anything. And I thought about building a new practice. It seemed kind of stale and lukewarm. I, I thought about maybe speaking again, but I didn't, you know, I looked so odd that I thought that's, that's not going to work. And I didn't know if I had the strength and I didn't get excited about it. And so I thought, well, as long as I'm waiting around to figure this out, I might as well unpack. So I started unpacking because I'd lived there six months and I was still living with a bed and some boxes, you know, kind of the bachelor kind of lifestyle. <laughs> right. And so I thought, well, I'll unpack some of these boxes. And one of the first things I came across was an old journal that I'd been forced to keep in sixth grade when I was 11. And I thought, well, let's see what the 11 year old Dean has to say. So I opened up very first page because mm -hmm. my parents were such adventurers. They'd instilled in me a, a thirst for adventure. First page, when I get old, I gotta climb Mount Everest, swim the English Channel. Wow. <laughs> and when I saw it, when I, that's all I wanted to do as a kid. And when I saw that, it was like these dormant dreams just sprung back to life. And for the first time in years, I got excited again. And it was almost like a rush went through me, uh, a shot of adrenaline. And I thought, okay, now I can't climb Everest because I've known some guys that have. And with my immune system and my blood the way it is it's not going to handle altitude right that wouldn't work but i'm right. pretty sure yeah i'm pretty sure i can swim the english channel wow and then for the next few days i had this war within myself it was like are you crazy that's gonna kill you <laughs> but it's yes. But it's going to be fun. And <laughs> fun. if you do it, I Googled very quickly. No active cancer patient had ever swum the English Channel. So uh, one of my degrees is in world history. And I thought, how many times can you even find something that no one in history has ever done before? Wow. That's very, very rare. And so I thought, even if I die trying it leaves my daughter with a legacy of courage and hope. And so that's, that's really, it was for her. It, I thought I, I can't die. She just, you know, at this time she was 21. Mm -hmm. She just lost her mom a couple years before. I can't, even if I'm going to die, I don't want to die on a couch or in a hospital bed watching wheel of fortune. Yeah. I got to die swinging for the fence. Wow. So you, you actually yeah. became the, first person in history to swim the entire 187 mile length of the Willamette River in Oregon. Is that correct? Right. That's correct. I was born only four blocks from the Willamette River. It's the largest, longest river in Oregon. Starts up in the mountains, comes down, goes through our two biggest college towns, and then our capital city, Salem and then flows through all the winery areas, the mm -hmm. vineyards, the Willamette Valley. And then it comes through Portland, our largest city, and then it dumps into the Columbia. Wow. Yeah, and so as, as I was swimming, 
uh, preparing for the English Channel about Christmas, it hit me. Who cares if another middle-aged man puts on a Speedo and swims to France? <laughs> it, it really won't do the world any good. And so I started thinking, what would do the world some good? Well, maybe if I did something here at home and partnered with the local Leukemia Lymphoma Society, maybe mm -hmm. I could inspire other cancer patients to refuse to give up too. And Absolutely. so that's what I did. Absolutely. So, yeah. wow. Yeah. Because also this is a fit life podcast. So I, I, I'd be, yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I'd be reminiscent if I didn't ask you about your training, right? Your training philosophy when they right. came to right. swimming. So mm -hmm. what was that like? What did you have to do to get in shape to, to swim? Right. Well, the first one was just to start uh, the first day challenged myself to do 10 laps. Well, 10 laps you can do in about nine minutes. It's no big deal. But I was so sick. I knew that that would be kind of like a marathon for me. Right. Uh, and so, and my doctor was like, don't even get in a public pool, Dean. It'll kill you. And I'm like, I got to. And so I did. And as soon as I pushed off the wall, I felt like for the first time in years, felt like myself again, because I've done lap swimming so much for triathlons and it felt good. Uh, it took me over an hour to do my 10 laps. And then my dad always instilled climbing mountains and stuff. He'd always push me to the limit. And, and when he thought I couldn't do any more, he'd be like, okay, now do some more. <laughs> and so when I got to my 10th lap, I could hear my dad saying, okay, now you think you're good, do one more. And so I did one more. So I ended up doing 11. Wow. And then every day, my goal was to just do one more lap every day. Hmm. Your, your dieting, was there any special dieting involved? Uh, yeah, I cleaned up my diet immensely. Uh, of course, drank a lot of water, um, started taking a multivitamin, a good one, not just a type, you know, you get at the grocery store that are real hard to digest. Mm -hmm. And then one of the biggest changes I made was I started juicing mm -hmm. and immediately my oncologist within about a couple months noticed uh, my blood work really springing to life and going in the right direction. And for just one split second, he, he blurted out, oh my goodness, this is way better than chemo and radiation. Hmm. And I said, because I hadn't done them yet. Right. And he said, I said, what? And then he realized what he blurted out and he wouldn't, he wouldn't repeat it. Um, <laughs> but that and making sure to be very careful with my stress and holding on to emotions, toxic ones like anger and sadness. Um, yeah, that, that's, that's what I did. Wow. So let me get this straight with your mental attitude, because that was a mental attitude you had to pursue, right? Mm -hmm. And then right. with your diet, right. go to attitude. That's, that's what made all the difference. Am I right or wrong? It really did. And really just getting excited about swimming the river and becoming the first person in history to do so. Uh, that goal, it seemed like such a wild impossible adventure it, it was it was right in what i call the sweet spot it, mm -hmm. it excited me but also terrified me hmm. um i didn't know if i was going to live through it but i think that's the sweet spot i think if 
if your goals at some level don't terrify you, then they're not big enough. I see. And so I just kept pushing. And then by first actual river swim in early April, late March, and started really doing marathons then, um, swimming two, three miles at a time in the pool and nine, 10 to 12 miles in, in the river. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. That is amazing. Um, yeah. Tell me quickly a little bit about your profession. You're a licensed clinical marriage and family therapist, correct? That is correct. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So tell me and, a little bit about that. Uh, Right. Uh, for years and years and years, I mostly worked with uh, families mm -hmm. uh, and family problems and marriages. Uh, that's where I was mostly trained, but as I, I'm trained also to deal with individuals. And uh, I've spent most of my time dealing with anxiety and trauma in, in my cases over the years. And you wrote a book. <laughs> yeah, yeah. On top I, of everything. Um, <laughs> right. Yeah, I, I dealt so much with sexual trauma for 10 years. I wanted to get on the front side of it. And so in 2007, I wrote a book teaching girls uh, how to be aware of date rape and the signs because uh, 8.7 girls that are raped are not raped by strangers. They're raped by people they know and trust. Uh, usually old boyfriends or colleagues or coaches mm -hmm. and, and they just don't know that. So they're constantly at risk. And the FBI's made four profiles of acquaintance rapists, but nobody would written about them. So I worked with a community college for a year and a half uh, and talked to the girls about their dating practices and then uh, wrote this book on date rape. And I really thought that would be my life's work. Mm -hmm. But then uh, within a year, my wife died and the subject matter is so difficult. Anyway, I just, just didn't have the stomach to continue it. You are a motivational speaker. I am. Uh, so right. I'm sure you, you do. I mean, obviously with the pandemic, it's been very restricted right. right now, but it has. I'm sure that once it starts opening up again, you'll um, maybe get on the road, maybe? Right. Can... Hopefully. Sure. Yeah, that's that's one of my greatest passions is to inspire people to never give up regardless of the challenge, because we all have challenges and to show them how when you become passionate about something, even if people tell you it's impossible, it, it's not. It rarely is. There's always a way to find a way. And when you follow your dreams, here's the biggest part of my message. When you follow your dreams, miracles happen. When I decided to swim the Willamette, uh, I'd never heard of cold water immersion or Wim Hof. Didn't know how being hypothermic boosts your immune system. And then I swam the Willamette. It took me 22 days. It was 40 degree water. And so the biggest challenge was constant hypothermia. And then the miracle that sprung out of that was the first blood test I took. Afterwards, the leukemia was gone. Wow. And the only thing they can scientifically understand and make of that, because that type of leukemia is not supposed to ever go away, and it's gone, um, is that uh, that constant state of hypothermia plus pushing that lymph system and the blood 
as much as I did to be swimming eight to 10 hours a day. Uh, and, and the oxygen that was going through my blood system, all of that combined really healed my cancer. And then they say yeah. that miracles don't happen, right? Right, right. And that's, that's my handle, both for um, Instagram and Facebook, and then also my website, Swimming in Miracles. Yeah. And most people think that it's because of these miraculously long swims that I do. But no, I believe that uh, once you start looking for miracles, they're around you so much, and especially if you're chasing your dreams pretty soon you find that there's so many all around you every moment of every day you're swimming in them absolutely two more questions sure uh, first question where this is my left field question where okay where, where do you see yourself five years from now ah um i have no idea <laughs> uh you know because life has shown me that it can change on a dime my hope is that i'll be doing more speaking uh, right now, I'm working on a couple big projects, and I'm working with a documentary film team. Uh, we were going to do a really big swim and a documentary, but COVID canceled all of that. Mm, and yeah. so my hope is that I'll get to at least do one big swim this summer over in the UK with one of their longest rivers, and the documentary team will join me and we'll practice working together and see how that goes. That just all depends if uh, borders open up. Mm -hmm. And then a year, um, almost, uh, we just passed it. This next January, we hope to go to New Zealand and swim their three longest rivers back to back. Uh, because coming from a mountaineering tradition, mountaineers will go from mountain to mountain to mountain but the swimming world never does that. So I want to introduce that to the swimming world that that's possible. You don't have to be one and done. And so we're hoping to go down to New Zealand and swim their three longest rivers and end up with the third longest river for a reason. It's called the Wanganui, and it is the sacred river to the Maori tribe. And it's the only river in the world that has been declared legally. Uh, they did this to kind of boost their environmental protection of this river. Uh, they've declared it a living being legally. Mm. Yeah. And you can't spend much time in a river without becoming so connected to it. It feels like a living being. I call the Willamette Mama River uh, wow. because she kind of gave birth to a whole new way of life for me. Uh, yeah. Last question. Give me your social media handles where people can reach out to you. Or... Sure. Yeah. And I love it when people do. So uh, contact me on my website. My website is www.swimminginmiracles.com. And then Instagram's probably the easiest way to get a hold of me anymore. Uh, you could just DM me anytime. And I try to respond to everybody that that uh, messages me on Instagram. And that's um, Swimming in Miracles as well. And then Facebook, if you look up Swimming in Miracles, uh, you'll find the posts that I made. If you go back far enough, all the way, the Willamette posts are still even on there from 2014. So, Dean, I, I'm telling you, I'm blown away. I am so glad that you uh, were able to join our show today. 
nothing, nothing but the best to you and continued strong health and, and all the blessings that I can send you. I, I really oh. want to thank you for, for being on the show and, and please stay in touch. And if there's anything okay. else coming down, please let me know. I had, thank you. <laughs> thank you so much thank for being you. on the show, Dean. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. And thank you for what you're doing and putting out in the world to, to show people that fitness is really a lifestyle, not just a simple pursuit. Thank you, Dean. I'll talk to you soon. Take care. Okay. Thank you. Bye-bye. Well, that is it for this episode of A Fit Life. I want to thank our guest again, Mr. Dean Hall, for a truly amazing story. I hope you all enjoyed it as much as I did. And if you did, please subscribe and rate this show on iTunes. We are available on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, Luminary, and TuneIn. You can find us at Believe.com and at Believe Podcasts. Any comments or questions you'd like to submit, you can do so at Neraldo Meglara on Instagram and Twitter. In closing, if you're interested in advertising on the show, please contact Believe at Believe.com. For a fit life, I'm Geraldo Meglara here on the Believe Podcast Network, the number one podcast network for professionals. Do you believe? Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.